This is Happiness Solved with America's Happiness Coach, Sandy Scarlatta. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. This is your host, Sandy Scarlatta, and I am so happy you're here. First of all, I want to thank each and every one of my listeners for all the five-star reviews, and I'm so proud to announce that because of you, Happiness Solved Podcast is now in the top 0.5% globally and growing. We just had our biggest month ever with over 85,000 downloads. So I have a question for you to ponder. Are you reaching your full potential or is something holding you back? I am grateful to announce the launch of the Peak Performance Mindset Academy, where you will discover strategies designed to transform your mindset and shatter your performance ceilings. Envision feeling unstoppable and confident in any professional or personal situation. Don't wait to start living your best life. Text PEAK to 26786 and begin to embrace the power within you. So when you text PEAK to 26786, you will receive access to my new book, Peak Performance Secrets. And as a special gift to you, the first 100 people who download Peak Performance Secrets will receive a three-month trial membership into the Peak Performance Mindset Mastermind at the reduced rate of only $19.95 per month. So don't wait. Text PEAK to 26786. Thank you for listening today. And remember, happiness is a choice and the choice is yours. Enjoy the show. Alexandra Stevenson. Wow. So Hi. this is, hello. You're kind of one of these guests that when your publicist sent it to me and I read, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. But it was probably scheduled, I don't know, a couple months ago or a month ago. I don't know. And so it isn't until the day of the interview where I actually, you know, look at the the bio again and, you know, reading your bio, it, it leaves me almost speechless. For the audience, Alexandra is a former trafficking victim turned activist who embarked on her anti-trafficking journey at 11. After 10 years of personal hardships, you recognize your experience with, you know, as human trafficking. And it's interesting because you are the second guest I've had that went through that experience. Oh, wow. And she too did not realize that that was what was taking place. So can you, so, so first of all, I just want to honor you and your courage because this is not an easy topic to talk about for anyone because it's one of those things that we know is going on but you know when when you actually and you know when you when you actually talk to people who have experienced it it, it just it just it, it's it's a it's a tough topic so i just want to acknowledge you for for having the courage to come out and and share your story because it's it's definitely something that we need that we need education on because from what I understand about it, a lot of times young girls and boys are drawn into it and they don't even know what it's, what's happening at the time. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, so can and you share thank you your story. That. Yes, I can. And, um, I'd like to start by kind of reflecting that back to you because absolutely, this is a hard topic to talk about, um, as a victim survivor of it, but for people who, haven't been touched by it or to their knowledge haven't been touched by it to create space to talk about it 
um, and use their platform to talk about it as you are, as well as your listeners who are taking the time now to pause their day and dive into um, a bit of human darkness so they can learn and bring some light to that. That is incredible. And that's why I do what I do. So thank you to you and to your listeners. Um, Thank you. So my uh, story is, it's, it can be very, very short or very, very long. Um, And I do tend to lean more into the longer version because I think the short version is I was trafficked at 20 years old. And I didn't find out I was trafficked until I was about 30. Um, And that's how I kind of got, I'll say, got involved in the anti-trafficking movement. Having said that, as you said in my bio, I was an anti-trafficking advocate at 11. So that's where the story gets longer because I was not dropped on this earth at 20 years old, right? Like I didn't just show up one day and go, hey, I think I'm going to exchange sexual acts for things of value. That sounds like a great idea. Right. Um, Things led me to that point. And I think the reason I start my, my story so young is I don't check any of the boxes that people so often think, okay, well, those are the high risk or like vulnerabilities that, you know, right. go, people go, oh, okay, well, that explains that. Um, I was, and I hate this word, but I was a quote unquote normal kid from a quote unquote normal family. Like I was raised in um, suburbia, like just picture perfect. They filmed anybody who knows the movie, The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Yeah. Um, they filmed part of that uh, around the corner from my house. The oh, part wow. that, you know, is is the mom's house that's supposed to look like, you know, picture perfect suburbia. Um, and I would grow up with my mom and my dad and I had an older brother and I actually have an older half brother as well, but um, he's quite a bit older. So I wasn't raised with him. You know, I grew up playing outside on the streets with my friends and, you know, kicking a ball and, and well, I'd say playing hockey, but I didn't play hockey. I got put in like goalie gear and got slap shots hit at me by the neighbor boys. But um, it was just quintessentially perfect. And um, as any adolescent kid does, I was figuring out who I was. And, you know, was I athletic? Resounding no. Um, was I creative? Ish, a little bit. Could I be a singer? Absolutely not. Um, you know, all these different things. And the place where I found my niche and the thing that I was really good at turned out to be advocacy. Now that's not really, you know, on the list of things you expect for a a preteen. But when I had a teacher read our class, a story about, um, a boy who lived in Toronto, I lived just outside Toronto and the boy is a few years older than me. And he had started a nonprofit organization called free the children when he had heard that child labor and child exploitation existed. Mm. So when I heard in this one story, both that kids can do stuff, like important stuff, um, and that bad things were happening to kids. I was like, okay, well, that seems like a really easy answer to me. If bad things are happening to people and I have the power to change it, why would I not do that? So two friends and I actually started the first Oakville chapter of Free the Children. Free the Children later became We Charity, which was behind a massive Me to We movement across the globe. Um, This is when it was still very small. So I skipped my first school dance to stuff school and health kits to send overseas to kids who have been freed from child labor. 
Um, I, instead of, you know, getting in trouble after school, I was door knocking to collect signatures for a petition to send to our government um, to strengthen wow. laws regarding child labor. Wow. So I'm pretty sure, you know, as a mom myself now, um, though my kids are, are much younger, I'm pretty sure, you know, my parents were probably patting themselves on the back and being like, we just won parenting. Like, this is <laughs> exactly right. This kid is, you know, 11, 12 years old and like, all right, we're done. We're done parenting. Like, she'll parent us now, teach us all these things. Um, and that absolutely might have been the case. And that would have been the life path uh, that I was on if it had not been for um, my friend's uncle. And at about 13, 14 years old, um, he began grooming and sexually assaulting me. Mm. And I say began because this went on for several years. And this is where my life path obviously just like dramatically changed. However, right. um, this isn't a movie. So I it wasn't like a montage where I suddenly started, you know, wearing all black and you know black eyeliner and and immediately hanging out with the wrong crowd and there was all these glaring warning signs it really wasn't like that I did start slipping I moved away from the advocacy work but you know preteen to teen that wasn't really necessarily a big shock right like kids are finding yeah. themselves and right. they change friends and what they like and don't like um on the surface I was still getting good grades I wasn't really a kid who skipped a lot of school so I was always kind of like if I at least if I show up in class I'll absorb this by osmosis or something like I may as well just be here so I got reasonably good grades um from the age of about 16 to 19 I had a long-term boyfriend um but in the background what my parents didn't see is I started doing drugs um, I started smoking weed. I started doing mushrooms. And over the years, over those years, I worked my way through ketamine, ecstasy, and finally landing on meth, which ended up being sort of my drug of choice for quite some time. So I graduated high school. Um, and I, it, I can't get too much into the detail, but the uncle who was assaulting me, I found out he had assaulted some other people as well. And mm. when we realized there were um, some young girls, his his daughters at risk, we went to the police. And so the criminal justice system got involved in my life. Now, up until that point, I had been telling myself this story that um, I was a wildly mature teenager and we had been in some sort of clandestine relationship because I had learned my whole life that sexual assault was no means no. It was a stranger in an alleyway. It was someone kicking and screaming and fighting and, and all of that. And that wasn't my experience. Right. My experience was confusion and shame and interest and excitement. Mm -hmm. There was a good looking 30, 30 something year old man who was showing interest in me. Right. And I was not popular among my peers. Um, I was a nerdy kid on the outside and like a nerdy kid on the inside, like being a child advocate does not endear you to your peers. Um, so when he showed interest in me, it kind of felt like it elevated me like, yeah. oh, well, I have this secret. I'm I'm in a, you know, special relationship. I knew it was wrong because I didn't tell anyone. Right. And my body knew it was wrong. And that's why I started numbing out and using substances. But 
until the justice system got involved, I could keep telling myself this story. Right. So when they got involved, um, and it, you know, I remember the look on the detective's face as she was drawing the story out of me and the look of sadness. And she now, felt how sorry. old were you? How old were you at this point? When we went to the police, I was 18, just about okay. to turn 19. Okay. Um, and so this whole story, this lie that I'd been living for four or five years, just, just blew apart. Um, and it was just suddenly, oh my God, I've, I've been assaulted. Like I had to, that cognitive dissonance piece, like I just had to, like everything slammed together and the truth was there, whether I liked it or not. And alongside that became this complete loss of autonomy and complete loss of my story as I got lost in the cogs of the criminal justice system. And that's where I kind of went from going, I'm doing drugs, but I have it under control. Like I'm partying on the weekends sort of thing, but right. I, I was maintaining a full-time job and boyfriend and all that. And I dumped the boyfriend. I quit the job. I did get another job because I still had to pay for things. Um, but I didn't go off to college as many of my friends did. I got a job working at a tanning salon. Um, and I started sort of living this double life. Like at night, I'd be partying and doing meth. And then during the day, I'd be managing this tanning salon. Um, and then he walked into my salon. And he was notorious in our town. Um, he had been in jail for most of the time I had been a teenager. Um, I'd know, I knew his twin brother, who was my drug dealer. And he got had gotten out of jail and he was a drug dealer and he walked into my salon and showed interest in me. And at that point I was like, well, I'm doing meth. He sells meth. It's a match made in heaven. Like, why not? This is, this is yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Um, and so we got involved and he is the man who ended up trafficking me. And it's still, it's still really, really hard for me to refer to him as my trafficker, because like I said earlier, I had no idea I was trafficked for another 10 years till 10 years after it happened. Wow. So how long were you with him and how long did this trafficking take place? Four months. Okay. What, how, how did you leave? How did you get, how did you leave the situation? I ran. Um, I, I got into a car accident and I have absolutely no proof that he caused it. Uh, though he, there were rumors that he had bragged about it. Um, and the car accident, I was pretty banged up. Um, and it meant that so at this point we'd been together and he'd uh, I had agreed to certain things and then he had you know there's a lot of violence in our relationship so he had forced me into doing others and I I at that point absolutely knew I was trapped um so when I got into the car accident it actually gave me breathing space because I couldn't dance on stage I couldn't you know, go out partying. I could, I broken ribs. I could barely breathe. I ended up with some pneumonia because of the broken ribs. Like it just gave me some breathing space. And in that breathing space, I remembered a piece of information he'd given me. 
And so I had, I had attempted to escape at one point by applying to school in Windsor, Ontario, where I had some friends going to school. And when I had gone to visit Windsor, um, he had I had, he had had someone following me and they he sent me pictures of me walking around Windsor. I didn't know someone was following me, but he had had someone following me mm. and, you know, indicated you're not going to get away that easily. Um, so the thing that I remembered was that he had actually been in jail in Ottawa, Ontario, and he had told me that there were people there who wanted him dead so he could never go to Ottawa. Now, lo and behold, back when I had had my plan of attempting to escape, I had applied to several different schools and one of them had been in Ottawa. So all of a sudden I was like, mm. I'm moving to Ottawa. Like this is, this is where I'm going to go. So I did that. I um, had to kind of, as I healed, I had to kind of play the game with him a little bit and, and we partied a little and, and he would lose his mind. And he was, I don't know, it, the, 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 bond the trauma bond had started to fray so i i i started to be like i yeah. might get out of this i might right. be able to and i did i moved to ottawa i went to school um i literally just like wrapped up that part of my life into a little box and i like put it on a shelf in the back of my mind you know scrawled in sharpie like never open this don't ever right. look at this this is bad news right. don't look there and i just continued with my life as though it hadn't happened um until about a year and a bit, year and a half after I moved to Ottawa, um, I was out drinking my white and green beer on St. Patrick's Day, as one does in college. <laughs> and um, I felt a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and it was him. Oh my gosh. And that um, that taught me that a trauma response um, is completely uncontrollable because... Mm my body responded instantly just by like running and then vomiting. Um, oh my gosh. The terror. And I had convinced myself that what had happened wasn't that bad. I hadn't really told anyone most of the details because of the amount of shame I carried. Um, I certainly, like, like I said, I just like put it in a box and put it away and been like, that's over. That didn't happen, you know? Um, and so at this point I finally went to the police and um we got once again i got enmeshed in the criminal justice system um i mm. lost my autonomy um i had been doing so well i had started in college gotten a scholarship to university was getting straight a's in university and at this point i started again spiraling trying to hold on um but as as we progressed through the court system and like court dates and all of that i ended up after dropping out of school after my second year um, but he was charged. He was held on remand. Um, he was found not guilty on two of the four charges because there simply wasn't evidence. And because a woman who had been a close friend of mine who had actually, um, helped patch me up after one of his, uh, more severe incidents of abuse got on the stand and said that she'd never seen a bruise on me, that, oh my gosh. um, he was a nice guy and that I had instigated any arguments between us and just just horrendous lies um and when he got out of jail again it took him 10 days to find me he showed up at my place of work um at that point I went to the police again and I started figuring out like 
do I have to fake my death, my own death? Do it like, how, like I've never, right. I'm never going to be free of this. Guy. Right. I, I kept thinking for so long, I had thought that was a blip, right? It was this thing you made bad choices, but it's over. And now, right. now I was like, I'm never going to be free. Um, and then, so that was November, 2010 that he found me again. And through Christmas 2010, I went back to our hometown. I used myself as bait. I didn't want to live in this, like, it, like is he going to show up again? It, like, why aren't the police arresting him? I didn't really understand what was going on. So I was just like, well, if he finds me, I hope he kills me quickly. That's that's mm. all I can hope for. Oh, my goodness. And um, then in January 2011, he was killed um, mm. in an incident completely unrelated to me. Um, and it was over. Wow. I was free. Wow. I am so sorry that you had to go through that. And, you know, where are you today? You, you know, you just shared this horrific story. And, and you know, as you were saying, as you were, as you were going through it, I mean, I, I get where you were coming from. It's so easy to compartmentalize and like, oh, it's not that bad. It's so easy to do that because we don't understand it. We Shame doesn't feel good, right? Yeah, shame is shame is like one of the worst feelings, right? We don't we don't want to feel that way. So how were you able to move forward to, to where you are today and be this advocate and this voice to educate people? Because I think trafficking is really about educating education. That because most people, like you said, like the other guest that I interviewed ended up homeless at the age of 15. Hmm. And was like living at the YMCA or whatever. And so so that's like you kind of say, okay, those circumstances, you know, she was pulled into that. And someone like like yourself, right? And and when you're explaining those circumstances, you don't realize it, how how people can have that power over you. Mm-hmm. Um, what it did make me remember, and it wasn't a human trafficking thing, my biological father was very physically abusive to my mother, like to the point he would pull pull guns on her and everything. Um, and he died when I was 18 months old. And to this day, you know, she always says he loved you very much. However, I'd still be running to this day if he was not alive, he was alive. So I kind of, you know, I, I get that feeling that you're like, okay, right. Like it's, it's over. So back to my, back to my question, how, how have you been able to move forward to get to where you are today? And now you have, thank goodness, you've got children of your own. I mean, that's just incredible because there's nothing better than being a mom, right? And, but um, how, how have you been able to move forward? I mean, that's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of heavy shit to carry. And here you were worried about swearing and I, I dropped the first one. <laughs> I like it. Thank you for laying that out there. <laughs> Um, it is a, it is a lot of heavy shit to carry. Um, and you know what, on some days I carry it, um, a hell of a lot better than other days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so to answer your question, moving forward has looked a lot like moving forward, skidding sideways, falling backwards, feeling like I fell off a cliff and have to start again. And then sometimes feeling like I've reached the peak of the mountain only to realize that I'm at base camp and not anywhere close to it. So um, I, I threw myself into two things mostly. Um, one is education. I, at my core, am a nerd, like back to that, you know, 11 year old advocate. I, 
love to learn. I absolutely love it. I'm passionate about learning. Um, and it's a safe place for me because I'm mm -hmm. good at it. So I collected, um, degrees. So I, I got a diploma in community and justice services, um, an honors diploma. I got a, um, I finished my bachelor's that I had to drop out of while, uh, I was dealing with him. So that's in criminology. And then I did a post-grad in, uh, victimology. And wow. then I recently finished my master's, uh, in psychology. Oh, wow. And so that for me has been one, like a constant through my life that when, yeah. when, when things get difficult, I like go back to school, which doesn't always make sense to a lot of people. But for me, it's, it's a safe place. Um, well, it's healthy. Thing, it's a healthy thing yes. to do. It's a healthy, it's a healthy, escape. it's a healthy stress, right? You know, yes, it is a lot of stress. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's, you know, the, the, the brain, the brain will always choose, um, a familiar hell over an unfamiliar potential heaven. So yes. high stress is a familiar hell for me. So if everything is calm, that is very unfamiliar and it makes me uncomfortable. And I tend to working on it in therapy, but I tend to then stir things up because if everything's too calm, I'm like waiting for the other shoe to drop yep. versus if I keep myself in a fairly high stress environment, that feels comfortable. Now, high stress because of, I, I have an assignment due is a hell of a lot better than high stress because someone is stalking me. So Absolutely. I've kept myself in that sort of high stress um, environment, I guess. Well, and, and it's also that type of high stress can be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it can be, it's a, yeah. it's a motivator to, right. to keep going and, and keep busy and yeah, yeah it, it's healing for some yeah. of us. For me, right. it is. Hey, um, whatever works, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and the other thing I did was I traveled, I, um, picked up and I moved to New Zealand for a while and then I, Ooh. I did Australia. I backpacked Europe. Um, and I, I just kept finding ways that I could feel safe, um, in, in new situations instead of avoiding what would make me feel unsafe. I, I just like, I'm more the like, let's just, let's do this and, and, you know, figure out how to swim once we're already in the middle of the ocean sort of thing. So wow. I did that. And then, um, my, I, I moved to Wyoming, uh, with my then husband and, while in Wyoming, because of visa, I'm Canadian. So because of visa situations, I couldn't work. Um, but I'm not one, as we just discussed, to like sit and twiddle my mm -hmm. thumbs. So I heard uh, of a woman who was doing some anti-human trafficking work in Wyoming. And I was like, okay, I don't know anything about human trafficking. But I've now worked within the social services field. I've worked with offenders and with victims, with men, with women, with children, with adults. Um, I've worked in prevention and rehabilitation, you know, right within the offender system. So I think I could probably learn about trafficking um, and, and lend a hand, not to mention, I have my own story of what I thought then I called it domestic violence and a series of my own bad decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so I met up with this woman, Terry Markham. I, I emailed her and I was like, hey, this is who I am and what I'm doing. Um, I don't know anything about human trafficking, but here's the deal. You can't actually pay me because I can't work. I'd like to volunteer my services. Um, and she tells me now, she's like, I thought you were punking me. 
Like who the hell, you know, emails someone and says, hey, I have, you know, several degrees and a lot of work experience. Please don't pay me. Can I help? Right, um, right. So we met up and as we got talking, I shared a bit about my story and she, you know, we go back on back and forth on this now thinking back, like, did she say I was trafficked? She's like, I would never tell someone, you know, they were trafficked. Like it's up for someone to decide sort of their own label. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure you told me. But regardless, she yeah. explained to me what human trafficking was in the most basic of terms and was like, it's, you know, it sounds to me, this is, this is what happened to you. And I remember laughing and being like, no, trafficking is that thing that happens to those people right. over there. Like, it's yep. not a thing that happens to a kid from Oakville, Ontario, um, you know, who is a nerd and all that. But as I came to understand it, it fit. and two things hit me. One, uh, for the first time in 10 years, the shame of having made horrible decisions as I, as I had labeled it lifted, it had somewhere to go. Suddenly it wasn't all my fault. I wasn't right. just, you know, excuse my language, please excuse my language here. But I had thought of myself as just, you know, a dumb whore, like someone who had, who had made horrible choices. And that's what I'd been called so many times that that's where my story sat and that's why right. I couldn't touch it. I didn't want to think about it. Right. Um, and suddenly now the idea of coercion is being explained to me and that just because you consented, if consent and coercion exist in the same space, the coercion voids the consent. So you didn't truly consent. You didn't know what you were consenting to. You didn't authentically consent. Um, and the other thing that hit me was at that point I I hadn't I didn't have my master's yet but I had you know the other degrees and diplomas I'd done a lot of work for 10 years in the social services field I'd been through a criminal investigation and court process against him and not once had the word human trafficking ever come up not once wow. the idea had never entered any of my textbooks had never entered any of the 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 detective's language it had never entered my head and I thought, as someone who's worked for 10 years in the criminology, victimology, offender field, as someone who went through court against their offender, all of this, and I had no idea I was trafficked, how the hell is anyone else supposed to recognize trafficking for themselves or for a loved one? Exactly. That is ridiculous. How yep. does no one know? Exactly. So we co-founded Uprising, the nonprofit um, in Wyoming, and I launched myself into anti-human trafficking work, which is where I'm at now. Wow. Can you, because you, you mentioned that she explained to you human trafficking at its very basic level. Can you please explain that to the audience so that people are aware? And, and then I'll have another question after that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, human trafficking. So Let's talk about commercial sex. Commercial sex is when you engage in a sexual act. It's not always intercourse. Any sort of sexual act can be stripping, can be um, oral sex, can be whatever, in exchange for something of value, right? So usually money, but it might be a place to stay for the night. It might be a ride to somewhere. It might be drugs. Um, it, it might be, I don't know, your freedom. It could be anything, something of value. That's commercial sex. When a third party profits, 
you've got human trafficking. Now, there are some, you know, codicils to that. If uh, someone under the age of 18 engages in commercial sex, they cannot consent to commercial sex. They're under 18. Right. So it's, that's, it falls under the umbrella of trafficking. If someone is over the age of 18, you have to prove that there's force, fraud, or coercion, right? So if you are, and this is where the gray area and a lot of the debates happen, but legally, if you are um, not being forced in any way, there's no defrauding. No one's telling you that, you know, we're just doing this for a little while until I make it big, or you're going to be a model, or, you know, they they promised you you were going to be a nanny, and then now you're having to, you know, work to get your driver's license back or something, whatever. So anything fraudulent or coercive. So um, the lies and the manipulation that can exist. So if you're over the age of 18 and you prove force, fraud, or coercion, then human trafficking. So in my story, I originally agreed to engage um, in commercial sex acts with my boyfriend. Cause I thought we were business partners. I thought we were, you know, working together, keeping our, our money. And then when he literally one day I were at a strip club and my feet suddenly are no longer on the floor and I'm being deposited, deposited up on stage with the last words in my ears being, don't get down until you've made me some money. That is trafficking. But to me, it didn't feel, I, I didn't know that. Well, I didn't know anything about trafficking, but I was on stage at a strip club. There are people around. I could have screamed for help. The thought never occurred to me. And I think that's where we get so confused about the idea of trafficking and how it's enmeshed with consent and what consent is. Because people think consent is the absence of someone screaming no. Right. And it's not. Consent is an enthusiastic yes, right? That is yes. not manipulated. That is right. not coerced and that right. is not forced. Mm. Wow. So having explained all of that, Alexandra, what advice can you give to a parent, to a teacher, to a counselor, you know, a neighbor who sees a young boy or girl or knows somebody like, what are what are some of the advice that you can give that would that would help them to identify if that's even possible that that there was human trafficking going on because i think that's the the, the hardest thing is like being aware of of what's going on absolutely it is and it's hard because i get asked this question all the time and you know i can give you a list of like do they check these boxes however half those boxes are just cranky teenager things too, right? right. Are they sullen and reserved? Do they hide their phone from you? Are they on their phone right. all the time? And like, I'm, I'm, you know, parents listening to this, parents of teenagers are going, uh-huh. Are yeah. you telling me my child is being trafficked? Like, no. Yeah. no um, exactly. <laughs> but there are some things you can look out for. Do they have uh, expensive or maybe not even expensive, but new things that you can't explain? Suddenly right. they have their, you know, eyelash extensions and you're like, uh, well, we're not a family that has a lot of spare income and you don't have a job. So where are you getting, you know, hundred dollar a month eyelash extensions or their nails are done constantly all of a right. sudden. 
they have new trinkets or um, tattoos sometimes, like anything sudden shift is always worth asking more questions. It's not a scarlet, you know, HT saying they're being human trafficked, but it's worth asking more questions. Um, Teachers, if you have a kid falling asleep in class all the time, ask more questions. I'm not saying kid falling asleep in class means they're being trafficked, but I have heard and discussed with colleagues so many cases where kids were being trafficked but they were still going to school and living at home. Parents and teachers had no idea. They'd go home, have their normal routine. Everyone goes to bed. They'd sneak out. They'd work several hours in the evening, come back before dawn, you know, catch an hour of sleep, go to school. They'd be falling asleep in class and they'd get yelled at, you know, you're just, you're up too late on your phone or, or whatever it is because, and it turns out they're not just up too late on their phone. They were having to work. Um, the evenings so mm-hmm. worth asking more questions yeah things like that for sure for sure well and I think that you know as a parent you know if my son came home with flashy items that I knew I wasn't paying for my first question or thought would be are, are you selling drugs right that's that's the that's the first thing that you would think of right yeah. is you're you're dealing drugs the the whole trafficking thing would would never even be in my realm of awareness so, so it's just those questions are important. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up dealing drugs because we're see, seeing dealing drugs is like the first thing, right? That a lot of parents are going to go to, right? Right. Because it's right. common. It's been talked about. We went through yes. DARE programming. We talk about drugs in school. Mm-hmm. Like we all have a general understanding of both. Like even if our understanding is only the one that's been fed to us through the media of what drugs are, what drug dealers look like and whatever, we have a... a we have an idea. It's in our brain as a possibility. Human trafficking is most often not in the brain as a possibility, as you just mm-hmm. said. No. However, we're seeing such an increase in trafficking that it is, I actually don't know if it is going to or has overtaken drugs as mm. making more money because several reasons. One, when you sell drugs, A, you have to carry them on you, which is risky. Um, You get caught with them. You get charged with trafficking. Um, B, when you sell drugs, you sell your baggie of whatever, it's gone. Now you need more to sell. You can make money. It's certainly lucrative. But when you are selling a person, you sell them and they come back and you sell them and they come back and you sell them and they come back. You can make endless amounts of money doing that. And the trauma bonds that traffickers go to great lengths to develop with their victims mm-hmm. mean that even if they come in contact with law enforcement or a parent or protective caregiver or something more often than not the victim is not going to screech and point their finger and say this person's making me do things i don't want to do They're going to say, you know, how dare you get mad at my boyfriend? He cares for me the way you don't, you know, we are in love. We, he takes care of me, you know, where this is a partnership, ding, ding, ding. I thought it was a partnership. Um, so when you, when they take the time to create that trauma bond, um, and groom their victims and all of that, then it's not only more lucrative, it can be safer. And that's why we need to have so much more education around this because it can be so, so dangerous. 
Yeah. Mm, oh my goodness. This has been such an incredible conversation, Alexandra. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience that you haven't talked about so far? Um, so, so many things, but I'm yes. sure um, we could talk for hours, but I try to keep these, you know, cause I don't, most people don't have that attention span, you know? Absolutely. Um, I will share this. Once I tell people what I do, or we get into talk, talking about human trafficking, um, first of all, we know statistically, um, the victims are mostly girls and women. Uh, mm -hmm. we do know boys are, um, victimized as well. But I always want to draw the conversation to not necessarily just looking at how boys need to be involved in the conversation as potential victims, but how we need to recognize the fact that if we're looking at a trafficking triangle, for example, so you have the victim, you have the trafficker, and you have the buyer, two-thirds of that triangle are stereotypically male, traffickers and buyers. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not and I hate men, men are evil, you know, diatribe at all. It is a, when we want to prevent something like trafficking, one of the most important conversations to have with your children starting very, very young and have it develop as they grow up is about consent. Talked about that earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about consent, it is not just teaching our girls how to say no and blow into a rape whistle how to right. walk without their earbuds in and not walk down dark alleyways and all of that. That's not teaching consent. Teaching consent is about teaching both how to give and revoke it and how to accept it and how to see when it is not being get freely given and how to right. not then try and push for it, right? Right. The narrative, we so often do the disservice of teaching our young boys is if you get a no, try harder, right? How do how often do we see that in rom-coms? Like girl says no, boy keeps trying until finally she's worn down and what he's doing is romantic, even though what he's actually done is harassed her for 90 right. minutes or well, 90 right. minutes of a movie. Right, exactly. And, you know, we need to be teaching everybody who is going to grow and develop and engage in sexual intimacy, both how to enthusiastically say yes, how to feel when their body is not enthusiastically saying yes. And that might mean, does it mean stop or does it mean slow down and reassess? And from the other side, how to gauge not just a word coming from someone's mouth, but someone's body language right. and how incredibly important it is to for that um, gauge of do we slow down or do we stop to be coming from both sides? Because if it is always on stereotypically the woman, the girl to have to be in the driver's seat of go slow down, stop, slow down, go slow down, all of that. And the boy is being taught just like pedal the metal, let's go. Mm -hmm. It is exhausting to always have to, to be gauging your feelings, their feelings. Am I comfortable? What have, what are people going to say about me? Like all, all of that. So if we teach all parties involved, that's right. To be gauging that and to be going, Hmm, you know, I'm, we're making out and it's a lot of fun, but every time I move my hands, she stiffens or, you know, I'm right. leaning. It's always me leaning in to kiss, you know, that these sort of things, you know what, or even 
I'm doing this because my buddies keep telling me to, but like, I don't know that this is really what I want to be doing. I really just like making out. I don't want to take it further, but that's what I'm told I'm supposed to try. All of these conversations, they need to be happening. So both sides are engaging with breaks and not just gas pedals when it comes to sexual intimacy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I know for me as a, as a parent, as a mom of a, you know, I have one child and he's now in college. That was one of my worst fears. And I taught him from a very early age. You're, you're not, you're not sending pictures of yourself naked ever. And, you know, when he went to college, actually when his, he was his high school girlfriend, he turned 18, 10 days before she did. I was like, don't you too engage in any sort of because I know I knew that they were having sex. I was like, no, not until she turns 18. And they're like laughing. I'm like, hey, you know, statutory rape is a real thing. Yeah. And if and even if she says yes, if somebody gets if her parents get upset at you, they can press charges. You know, so that was always my conversation. I hadn't, and, and this is just lack of education, because you know, he's he's 23 years old now. So so this was, you know, it's been a number of years. And I I just had no education about that whole consent conversation. And so thank you for bringing that up because I think that our boys, young men, have to be educated from an early age. Um, you know, for for you know, I was appalled when I had learned um a colleague's son was sexually um touched but but damaged. At, at, at the age of one from a, from a babysitter. Um, and, and, and so that was like my thing with my son. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, mm-hmm. I have to protect him. It was, it was just so horrifying. So that's such an important conversation. So thank you for sharing that. Um, this has been amazing. I love the work you're doing. What's next for you? I don't know. For some reason I'm seeing like PhD in the future. Ah, yes. I actually, so when I did my master's, I did it on a PhD fast track. So um, should I start my PhD in the next, I forget how many years I have, I like start in an advanced um, perfect standing. So maybe um, what's next? I have written a book. Yay. I am putting finishing touches on it right now. And then we'll be hitting, um, you know, trying to get agents and publishers and, and all that. Fantastic. Um, and uh, so that is sort of my next big thing. And I actually just recently found out that I have been chosen to do a TEDx talk um, oh, uh, so that I start my coaching process for that um, actually this Saturday, uh, October 21st. I don't know when this will air, but, and so I will be on the TEDx stage in January, 2024. So nice. those are my what? next two big things. Where your where's your TED talk? It'll be at TEDx Surrey, so that's nice. in BC near Vancouver. Nice, congratulations! Yeah. And when your book does come out, uh, when you're leading up to the book launch, please um, have your publicist or you can reach out to me and let's schedule another conversation so that we can promote your book and and let the audience know that uh, that that book is available. So absolutely, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody who's listened today. And I hope that uh, yeah. you got value from this. And if, you know, we'll, we'll have information on how to, um, uh, I believe your charity, did your publicist send me the name of your charity that we can put into the, um, into show the show notes? notes? Yeah. Yeah. I would quickly say any parents out there who are now suddenly like, oh my God, you've just given me something new. I have to freak out about, don't freak out. 
Right. Um, in the show notes, we'll put uh, Uprising's website and they have resources for parents and for children over the age of 12 um, okay. to how to talk about trafficking, how to talk about consent, like all of that stuff. So you oh, can go educate amazing. yourself further. And then, yeah, you can follow me mostly on Instagram at The Laughing Survivor. I love it. Thank you again. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone. I certainly hope that you enjoyed today's interview. Thank you so much for joining me. And as always, I hope that you and your family are healthy and safe and that your lives are filled with peace, joy, and happiness. Take care. The drive to go further and reach higher. The same thing that inspires you inspires us. At Strayer University, we're always searching for new ways to make education more affordable. That's why we offer access to up to 10 no-cost gen ed courses to help you save time and money so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. No-cost gen ed provided by Strayer University affiliates of Field Learning. Eligibility rules apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry, with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help, so you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.